Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column here, here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Memes, the Guardian's regular sideways squint through suitably dark glasses into the raging inferno that is Brexit. In this episode, then, an in-depth look at the question that really feels this week like it's coming to define the collision between Brexit the idea and Brexit the reality. In other words, the customs union. We're going to ask what a customs union is, why it's important, what the government plans to do to leave it, how it hopes to replace or replicate it, who is for or against which options, whether indeed they actually are options insofar as the EU27 have already ruled them out, where the politics are on the whole issue, in short, all you ever wanted to know about the or a customs union but were afraid to ask. So buckle up, here we go, with me in the studio to pick over all this in what we hope will prove to be a positive festival of expert knowledge and analysis is The Guardian's Brexit policy editor, Dan Roberts. Hello, Dan. No pressure then, John. (laughs) None whatsoever. Um, Let's begin at the beginning. In her Lancaster House speech last year, and in fact in all her other major policy statements on Brexit since... Theresa May has repeatedly stressed, and she did it again in an article in The Sun on Sunday this weekend, that she's absolutely determined that Britain has to leave the EU's customs union. Now, can you just first outline what the reasons are for this? And I mean, hopefully, and what I'm hoping along the way, you'll explain in sort of words of no more than three syllables what a customs union actually is. So... A customs union is an arrangement between a group of countries to have a common set of external tariffs. By tariffs, we mean trade tariffs. So, for example, we have a high tariff on imported cars into Europe, they're about 10%, but we share that with Germany and France and Italy and Spain. So if a car comes into a port, say Southampton, and is then 
going to be shipped internally to another country in the EU, it doesn't have to pay the duty again because it's had a single common external tariff. And the reason why Theresa May ruled that out to begin with and why there is still quite a lot of opposition to that in principle is that it prevents you from striking your own trade deal. So if you want to have a trade deal with Japan where you say you're only going to charge 5% on imported cars, you can't be in the customs union where there's agreed 10% tariff. So that in short is where the rub is. Okay, well that's clear enough. And now then on the flip side of the coin, Remain supporting politicians and indeed much of British business seems to be convinced that the UK needs to stay in the customs union or at least as close to it as sort of humanly possible. What's the argument for that? Well, it's all about trying to keep the friction out of borders, trying to make sure that goods can move freely um, across border posts. It's important to remember that customs is only part of what slows things down at at a border. Um, There are checks on regulation, there are security checks, immigration checks. If there are people driving the lorries, they have to have, uh, perhaps might have to have licenses and so forth. But one of the trickiest things about um, customs is this thing called rules of origin, which basically mean, if we go back to our car analogy, in order to make sure that someone's not circumventing the external 10% tariff on cars by bringing in all the bits to make a car cheaply and then knocking it together at the last minute and passing it off as a British car when in fact it's a Chinese car. We have these things called rules of origin which mean that you have to show a certain percentage of the final product has come from a country within the customs union. And if you don't find a way around that, ideally by staying in a customs union, but there are other ways around it which we'll come, come on to, then you have the potential risk that every shipment going from the UK to continental Europe will have to be subject to these rules of origin tests. Now, they might not check every lorry, but they would require, particularly car makers, somebody complicated, a big expensive item like that where the tariff is quite high, would be required to demonstrate where it had originally come from. Now, some of the the biggest companies that stand to lose from that are the car makers, particularly the foreign implants, the Toyotas, the Nissans, and the BMWs, who have major facilities here, but import goods from all over the rest of Europe with very tight just-in-time supply chains. They fear that rules of origin checks, custom checks of any sort, yeah. but particularly rules of origin, could really grind those supply chains down to a, a slow crawl, or at least add enough grit into the machine to make just-in-time manufacturing And that would difficult. be very damaging for them. I mean, delays of even a few minutes would, would sort of accumulate into something quite significant. Yes, I mean they have done a number of studies showing that if you add in a couple of minutes at Dover at the port of Dover, you could have pretty long tailbacks quickly mount up because there's nowhere at Dover to stack the vehicles while they're waiting to go through these checks and a company like Toyota or Nissan really operates on very very tight just in time um, logistics but also very tight margins these are mainly mass volume low margin cars where if you start introducing not only the potential delays at customs but also potential tariffs as well you're really eroding any profitability they they might have and many of the reasons they were here to begin with was because britain was inside a customs union um this was one of the founding principles of the of what then became the wider single market which is me single market to to see off any complaints means much more than just the customs piece but this is a fundamental part of it 
Okay, and the argument I sp- uh, also of uh, the pro-Remain camp and of British business as well is that the ability to strike trade deals independently and what Britain might hope to earn from that is not going to offset the cumulative effect of all these problems that might be thrown up by leaving the customs union of the European Union. Yes, yeah, so the uh, the big argument in, le- in favour of leaving is that there are supposedly trade deals that we can strike outside the EU that we've been struggling to strike until now that will compensate for any economic loss from being less integrated with Europe. That's been pretty comprehensively trashed, even by the, the, the government's own analysis, some treasury analysis has shown that it's really not the case. There, there may be some trade deals that we, we can strike. The chances are we will be in a less strong position than we would be if we were bargaining alongside the rest of the EU. But even if we were to get all of the new trade deals with countries like India or China or the US... On because very favourable terms. On very favourable mm. terms, because they're so much further away from us and because we trade a lot less with them, most of the modelling shows that they wouldn't compensate for the loss or that would come from greater friction within Europe. OK. Now, the government's come up with two alternatives for remaining in the EU's customs union. One is called the Customs Partnership. The other is called Maximum Facilitation, or MaxFac for short, I believe it's known. Now, the Cabinet's deeply, deeply divided over which one of these to push for. Ministers Boris Johnson, just as we were recording, before we recorded this episode, was the latest of them. He's unleashed a sort of a veritable broadside, really, about the customs partnership. But anyway, the Cabinet's engaged in a war of words um, on this whole question in the pages of of the national press. So, can you just look for before we look at you know how practical or, or 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 whatever anybody else might think of them what those two options actually are and how in principle at least they're sort of supposed to work well the customs partnership is on one level quite a clever ruse it's an attempt to have you cake and eat it as <laughs> as we've discussed many times before on this show it's an attempt to maintain the common external tariff and therefore avoid the rules of origin problem that we've just been talking about, whilst at the same time allowing Britain still to strike independent trade deals. And you might say, well, how can you do that? Well, the clever ruse, the supposed way through threading the needle, is that we would offer a rebate to any importer whose end market was within the UK. So to use our car example again, say we did strike a trade deal with the US where we had just 1% tariff on imported cars, but the common external tariff for the rest of the EU remained 10%. If a bunch of cars arrive at Southampton, some of them might be destined for showrooms in the UK, they would have to pay the 10% EU tariff at Southampton. But the showroom in Basingstoke, to use an example, yes. will be able to say, ah, oh, but this is a this, this destined for the UK market. We've got a trade deal for the US that's more advantageous than that. We want our 9% rebate back. Now, with a car that's a high value item, item and where the tariff is quite high, uh, it's possible they might do that. And it's possible you might actually be able to track where that car's gone to make mm. sure that it does get sold in Basingstoke and not yeah, and, and not sort of smuggled into, the trouble into France. The trouble is yeah. that most items are not as valuable as a car. Most tariff disparities are nowhere near as big as 10%. And the bureaucracy involved in tracking those vehicles, tracking those products and making sure where they do end up getting sold weighed up against the benefit, the bother that the importer will seek to get their money back. 
is quite implausible. And one of the most persuasive arguments I've heard against this idea is that, more importantly, if you are an American trade negotiator, you're going to go, what? You're basically going to be faced with this sort of clever white horse mm, of fudge, mm. and you're going to go, that's just not worth yeah. the candle. That's just not going to happen. You, you want us to give you lots of preferential access to our markets, and in exchange, you're going to say, well, you have to pay the tariff. But honestly, if you fill in 17,000 forms, you might get some of it back. They're just not going to see it. And it implies a relationship candle. of considerable trust, well, as well, doesn't it? Well, yeah. So there's, there's a little bit of trust involved from the, the, the new trade partner, the US in this example, but there's a hell of a lot of trust involved from the rest of Europe because the rest of Europe is going to be relying on a country outside the EU and crucially potentially outside the ECJ jurisdiction and any checks and balances to police their external tariff frontier which is one of the most important economic barriers of any trading bloc. So it does require trust. It requires um, a heroic assumptions on technology and bureaucracy that have just been not and only... The, the, there are other... I mean, there are a couple of other objections I, I would imagine. I mean, firstly, you're imposing a considerable level of cost sort of administrative and bureaucratic and logistical cost on the EU 27. And you might sort of, you know, justifiably ask, well, why would you be expecting them to fork up for, you know, a decision that was essentially Britain? Yeah, I don't know about that. I, I, I'm going to put my hand up at every okay. point where I admit I'm out of my depth because there are many. And uh, and I've met very few people who really get their heads around this. The reason I pause there is that, as I understand the, the, the partnership model, the idea would be that the in our example of a, of a, of a car arriving at Southampton mm. that might end up going to a showroom in Brussels, when it crosses at Rotterdam or into the, into, in, into the Belgian market, there wouldn't need to be any checks because it would be seen from coming as a country inside okay. the existing customs okay. union the UK in that case. I, I'm sure there would be complications. I think the actual costs would be much higher mm. for the for, for the E27 with the other model that we're about to come on to, the Max Fact. Right. There, there would be major costs on both sides of the border. I think, but I'm happy to stand corrected, that with the, the, the one of the few upsides of the customs partnership is that the costs would predominantly be on the UK. Okay. Um, Mm. And what about the point that Jacob Rees-Mogg particularly makes very, very clearly, which is that, you know, even if Britain does remain effectively in the stroke A customs union through this partnership, the fact that you're getting kind of like on that, that goods are going to be transiting through the UK and into the European market implies alignment on all kinds of other regulations that are nothing to do with yeah. customs and therefore would effectively mean Britain staying in the single market, which is, of course, one of the other red lines that, that Theresa May is determined to keep. Yeah, this is a much bigger issue. And he's he's absolutely right. And 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 the Remainers make a similar argument. In fact, there are some who argue that the whole customs union debate is in, is is an entirely red herring because the benefits of avoiding rules of origin they argue are pretty tiny compared to the massive benefits that we currently accrue within the civil market and having standardized regulation so for example on on agricultural goods or food goods coming f- across the border it's much more important that you have a standard set of hygiene rules or a standard set of food safety rules than it is whether or not you're collecting a 1% tariff or even a 5% tariff. And so without that harmonisation, which 
many people think amounts to full single market membership. You don't get the frictionless trade. The customs piece is necessary but not sufficient to get that frictionless trade. To get the full frictionless trade, you need both. And I think that's where we're rapidly heading. We started with customs, but very quickly we are getting into a proper debate now about how the customs union and the single market together are what creates frictionless trade. I mean, and it's no accident. This is what the EU was designed yes. to do. Yes. This is, yeah. I mean, this is why yeah. I think so many people in Brussels are sort of so infuriated at the idea that we're trying to reinvent the wheel. They've invented the wheel once. Yes. This is their idea for how you make sure that goods pass yeah. through f- seamlessly. Yeah. Um, and we, we seem to still be at the stage of going, oh, but that's going to be, if we lose that, then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or then maybe there's a way around that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, all of that kind of explains why everybody from Boris Johnson to Michel Barnier thinks that that customs partnership is not going to work. Let's move on now to the second of, of those government options, the, old, the Max Fac. This is the one then that the Brexiteers in the cabinet want. But the big issue with this, which is essentially sort of a technology-based solution, isn't it? You know, the big issue there is it's going to require some kind of infrastructure, isn't it? And that's where you run into the problem with... I mean, even, even if it's technically possible, it will undeniably require some kind of infrastructure. And that's where you run into the problem of the Irish border. Yes. Um, uh, to, to recap, because some listeners may be um, confused by the renaming of all these mm. things. This was originally called the Highly Streamlined Customs Arrangement when they okay. first had the two-part... to the. the then they first announced these two policy ideas in the summer. Uh, this was the highly streamlined customs arrangement, um, which has since been renamed Maximum Facilitation. Broadly, it's it's a way of, of, of minimising customs procedures through two things. One is waving a lot of them through. So you would have uh, in Northern Ireland, the idea would be that small businesses, small traders would, would not pay any tariffs at all. They would be exempt under a certain turnover. Big businesses would be part of a trusted trader scheme where they would be required to self-declare their movements of goods in much the same way that, to be fair, they do over VAT or um, corporation tax at the moment. Companies are the onus is on companies to declare what they think they owe. And there's a system of inspections in place. If you get it wrong, the HMRC will come down on you like a ton of bricks. But the first line of defense is the sort of the, 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 the goodwill, the law-abiding nature of the companies involved. And then the government also expects that there would be a degree of electronic tracking, not to the extent that the customs partnership requires, but perhaps through number plate recognition to monitor lorry transports back and across the border. Now, in theory, these things are possible. The world is gradually heading in that way. The proponents of this would point rather overexcitedly in my ex- experience to some borders where there's some of this going on already, US, Canada, Switzerland, EU, Norway, Sweden. Um, but they all still require checks. Mm. I think it's something like one in every 100 lorries is, is pulled over on the Swiss-EU border. Um, that requires somebody to put it over. That requires mm. a booth. That requires some cameras. Now, the again, the proponents of the UK answer say, well, you don't have to be at the border. They can be a few miles back from the border. The point is that there is still a border, mm. and there's a notion, and it's, and it's a, in the case of, my understanding of Irish politics is the symbolism of any border. Yeah. It's the symbolism that there are that there are two separate um, countries requiring you to transition from one to the other. Now, you know, there are many Brits, I think, who would go, well, why are we getting hung up about symbolism? They just, just live with it. I can only go on what my understanding of, 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 of how fragile the Good Friday Agreement was. But the Good Friday Agreement was built around a fudge. It was built around the notion of pretending to two communities in the north two different things one that they live within the uk and one that they live within an island called ireland and 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 uh, and any degree of border imperils 
cause that. And I think the big fear is that so much of the Brexiteers' promises about the Max Fact solution require leaps of faith. They require the idea that you can be so sophisticated and we can trust businesses so much that this can be really down to a very minuscule level. And that's just not the experience in the real world. Um, and I think particularly for for the EU, which is worried about smuggling which is worried about sort of the potential sort of backdoor into the single market these are important points of principle okay Um, let's just touch a little bit on the the sort of domestic politics of where we are with these now Theresa May presumably uh, I mean she's backing the partnership the customs partnership presumably because she feels it's it you know it, it's the only way that she has really to deliver the, the Brexit that she has now promised uh, through all those speeches and with all those red lines. Where does the government stand on the, the government is split between the two and how does Parliament and the Lords fit into the picture? Gosh, well, I mean, as of today, with Boris Johnson going on the record calling Theresa May's preferred plan crazy, I think we are. In closest we've been yet to a constitutional crisis over Brexit, and that's saying something because we've we've <laughs> sailed pretty close. Um, but I do feel we've got open rebellion in the cabinet now. Our original reading on the Guardian of last week's meeting was that they delayed taking the decision, but much of the Brexit press had triumphed this as a great victory for the uh, the hardliners and had been telling everybody that Theresa May's customs partnership plan was, was written off. Yeah. It clearly isn't. Um, her business secretary was out again on on Sunday, saying uh, talking up its merits again, and the Treasury um, too. The reason they don't want to let go of it is they know that. I mean, neither of these two plans are acceptable to Brussels in their current form. But they hope that the customs partnership might be something they could persuade Brussels to adopt. And actually, the more the customs partnership evolves, the closer it looks to a customs union model, which is now preferred by Labour as well, and some of the Tory backbenchers. So you can see the Downing Street is just clinging on to this hope that perhaps just they can push something through that is close enough to a full customs union to, to um, keep Parliament and Brussels on board, but preserves this important ability to strike overseas trade deals. But the rebellion is getting so fierce, and, and Johnson does really look quite close to resignation on this, that the reverse seems more likely now that they will have to cave in and they will have to go back to this max vac option, which we know will not satisfy Dublin and will not allow the talks to progress um, in Brussels. And that involves jeopardising the transition deal. That involves getting us back to a potential cliff edge, no deal Brexit in less than nine months time. And these are almost unthinkable things now for Theresa May. They were they were pretty unthinkable when she first started threatening no deal yeah. 10 months ago to, to a year ago. But she's really run out of time to go back there. So I think we are heading for a showdown. Does she take on her cabinet or does she take on parliament the country the eu the, everyone else it works yeah. yeah even were they to be acceptable um which as you pointed out they're, they're they're not to the to the eu neither of those two options as they stand are kind of practically implementable before realistically before britain leaves are they and before the end of the transition period i mean it's going to be a, a, it, it would would they not require 
you know, some kind of postponement or extension. To- well, this was certainly the civil service argument at the time of the cabinet subcommittee last week. Um, we understand that they were told, they were briefed by civil servants that that it would take at least two, three, five years or so to bring in um, even the simpler version, which would be the sort of max fac, um, and and that would require not only the current two year, twenty one month transition phase, but would require a longer period in the customs union. I think that the hard line Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees Mogg school of thought would say, oh, well, we'll do the best we can and we'll get there. It'll improve over time. And, and I mean, they really want to, they want to hold their nerve, have a showdown with Brussels and say, look, you can have it either of two ways. Either we'll do our best to keep the customs minimal and the border minimal, and you just take a, take us at our take word, our on word that. for it, yeah. or else you bring the whole card, get whole house of cards down, and it's on you that everything collapses, and that'll be even worse because it will definitely be a hard border. Then I think that's their preferred route. They want that kind of showdown, confrontation, with the confrontation yeah. with Brussels. Yeah. I think Theresa May, having been on the brunt of a whole series of concessions over the last eighteen months, just doesn't feel that Britain has the cards to play mm. that kind mm. of game. Mm. So is this where the? I mean. This sounds like then this is where the kind of everything will be all right on the night approach kind of starts to run out of road. Is it? Well, yes. I mean, the EU seems to be wanting to bring things to a head in June at the next council meeting, which gives the British government only a couple of weeks to decide what it wants. I mean, it's still the surreal thing is that with the two options that are on the table for the Brits, neither of them are on the table for Brussels. Yeah. So that still involves quite a lot of um, of leaps of faith to get you from from one to the other. But you can imagine maybe if Theresa May wins this, she'll have enough internal clout that she can kind of edge close enough to the customs union to get the the EU to give them some more time and blah, 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 kick the down, can down the road a bit more. But I think that you, we are at the end phase. Now, I've said that before. I've hoped before that we might be reaching ahead. The reason I think that this is helpful in some kind of some ways, although there is an awful lot of, of obfuscation still and missing the point around the political debate, but at least we are now getting down to brass tacks. This is about hard or soft Brexit. This is about two very different visions of what Britain will be after we leave the EU. And that debate was always going to be fraught within the cabinet because the cabinet was a coalition of of people who felt very differently about that. But this is coming to a head. And hopefully, once it's come to a head, we may then be able to get to the next phase about making one or other work. Right, right. Okay. Well, I hope that's cleared up a few questions for everybody. Um, That's it for this week. Thanks very much to Dan once again for joining me today. Uh, Please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next week, I'm John Henley. The producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Means and thank you all very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.